Throughout this season, we've heard a lot about the importance of experience when it comes to the success of food and beverage businesses. And while factors like technology and design play a huge part in creating great experiences, it's important that we don't forget about the human touch. We've got to remember we're people-led, so we're an industry that celebrates people by virtue of experience. When we bring people into our businesses, we bring them in for an experience, and there's no one part of said experience that is greater or lesser. Now, we need to start looking at the experience of our teams. How can we get our teams to return? How can we raise our team's expectation? You see job adverts for many industries out there, and it says things like free meals on duty, free uniform. Well, that's not a perk of employment, that's tools to get the job done. This is Beyond Retail, the show that helps businesses make sense of the emerging trends and technological developments within the ever-changing landscape of the retail and hospitality industries. I'm your host, Marie Keyworth. In this season, we explore the food and beverage industry's taste for change. We investigate how the sector has adapted amidst the challenges of a post-COVID society, and how it's continuing to evolve in response to new societal pressures and changes. In today's episode, we'll be asking the experts what a great experience means for one of the most crucial stakeholder groups in the entire F&B space, the staff. People are the lifeblood of the hospitality industry. And while our restaurants, hotels, bars and cafes have always prioritised the experience of customers and guests, the same hasn't always been true for their frontline staff. And in today's episode, we're going to explore some of the new ways brands are working hard to change this. We'll learn about the challenges facing the F&B workforce, and we'll take a look at some of the solutions that are set to help businesses overcome them. Plus, we'll find out what employers are doing to make work in this field more attractive, in a bid to attract new staff, and retain existing employees. And if the public's perception of hospitality work is anything to go by, these solutions can't come soon enough. Hardworking, tiring, always standing up. And they probably deal with a bit of abuse as well from customers. Yeah, it can be pretty tough. It depends where you're working and how, what your manager's like. But yeah, I had really great experiences where it's nice coming to work. But sometimes the hours can be really long for not much pay, so it's pretty terrible sometimes. I think it's long, hot probably quite stressful, maybe not enough breaks given. Long hours, erratic schedules, high physicality, life in the food and beverage workforce certainly isn't a walk in the park. But in a post-COVID world, and as the cost of living crisis continues to tighten its grip, employers need to work harder than ever before to raise the working conditions in the F&B industry. Because without these people, there is no hospitality industry. As today's first guest, Robert Richardson, the CEO of the Institute of Hospitality, explains. Hospitality is the third largest employer in the UK. We employ over 3 million people uh, directly, which currently is 9% of the total UK job market. One in six of all new jobs created is in hospitality. And people working in front of house roles make up a huge amount of that number. They're vital in keeping the industry going. They're vital in um, producing service, memorable moments, and actually bringing a personality to our business. So uh, in terms of how important service staff are, your question, they're vitally important. They're the front line of the business. However, it's not been so easy recruiting people for these vital roles in recent years. 
The last industry insights that we looked at demonstrate that chefs uh, are the hardest to recruit for at the moment. So 37% of vacancies out there are for chefs. That's followed by housekeeping cleaning staff, which comes in at 34%, more generic kitchen staff at 30%, and waiters and um, front of house staff at 29%. So that's the unfilled rate. Effectively, one in every three roles remains unfilled right now, and that is a challenge. Recruiting in hospitality is enormously tough at the moment. It was getting harder coming into the pandemic. The pandemic obviously gave rise to a lot of uncertainty, certainly with the stop-start nature of hospitality being open, being shut. And all of a sudden, as an industry, we became one that had a huge degree of uncertainty. So when you were looking for a job in these heightened times, hospitality was seen as a very uncertain, very difficult prospect versus a lot of other roles out there. And there is still a hang-up from that. But the hospitality industry is resilient. And even in the face of a post-COVID cultural shift and a cost-of-living crisis, it has a few tricks to help it weather this current recruitment storm. I think the one thing we've got to keep in mind is it's not a UK-centric issue, it's a global issue. Last year I was in a conference in America, and it was a very international conference, and every operator was telling me the same thing. So the challenges that we're facing, it's a global piece, it's not a UK piece. In terms of how we can address these um, challenges, we've seen a push lately to start recruiting the over 50s. We're becoming a much more inclusive industry than we've ever been before, which I think, again, is fantastic. We're actively looking to tailor our roles around the individuals, whereas previously we might have tried to tailor the individual around the role. So if you've got two people that might be working parents or single parents or carers and they can only work four hours in the morning, one of them four hours in the afternoon, the other, we're we're going down that route of flexible hiring practices, which, again, is excellent. We see a lot of um, restaurants and bars who have reduced the volume of items on their menu because they don't have the staff to service it. So instead of having 10 items, they have five. They're doing five items well instead of 10 items potentially badly. They've put set closures in. So the restaurant will open a Sunday lunch and then reopen on the Tuesday evening, which means the team have consistency of time off. So we're becoming a much more inclusive, much more flexible industry. And it's a change that is being embedded in our businesses. It's not something that's here until life gets better. This shift is permanent. So I think the fact that we've evolved and adapted with it so well is something certainly to be um, celebrated. F&B businesses aren't just trying to cast a wider recruiting net. They're thinking about ways to improve working conditions in the sector to make it more appealing. And brands are doing this by taking one of their most powerful tools for customer acquisition and applying it to their recruitment and retention efforts. We've got to remember we're people-led. So we're an industry that celebrates people by virtue of experience. When we bring people into our businesses, we bring them in for an experience. And there's no one part of said experience that is greater or lesser. Now, we need to start looking at the experience of our teams. How can we get our teams to return? How can we raise our team's expectation? You see job adverts for many industries out there, and it says things like free meals on duty, free uniform. Well, that's not a perk of employment, that's tools to get the job done. I'm a big believer in collaboration. So rather than me sitting there and thinking, what can I do to get you into my business? It makes more sense for me to ask you. Now, we talked earlier about widening the net for employment. We've equally looked to be a bit more of a EDI-focused employer as an industry. So at the Institute, something I did at the start of this year was hire our first ever 
um, equality, diversity and inclusion lead. And their job is to provide best practice and training for businesses out there to bring people in with hidden or visible disabilities. And there is a need for that. And how often do you go through a checkout at Tesco's or walk into a hotel lobby and have a wheelchair user actually manning the desk? You don't. But why is that? You have a huge amount of people out there who have some form of disability or another who would like to work. So for me, that's a very small progression. We worked on a report last year called the Future Skills Report, and that showed that recruitment and retention is going to be the top line in challenge for the next decade. People development is a huge part of everyone's strategy at the moment. When people look at businesses and see that they could become part of that business, belong to that business and thrive in that business, development is front and centre. So what we should be looking at as a business is how when you come through our doors, can we make you the best version of yourself, not just in our business or in our industry, but as a person? So I think whereas we're looking from the employee to provide the best service to the business, we need to provide the best service to the employee. And that translates to the obvious, better pay, better working conditions, etc. But your own personal development as you go through the journey of your career and your life. So this is a hugely exciting time in that we're seeing culturally we're shifting. And how often in your lifetime do you see a cultural shift on that scale? As has been the case throughout the history of the food and beverage sector, brands aren't going to take these modern challenges lying down. They're reassessing and adapting their value proposition for potential employees and taking real action to improve their workers' experience. But experience isn't just about staff perks. As we've learned in this season, experience is made up of many different factors. And there's one in particular that's being used to aid brands through all stages of the recruitment journey, technology. Here to tell us more about the role tech is playing in sourcing and keeping hospitality talent is co-founder and CEO of Storkit, Christophe Delacroix. The good news is that there are many technologies available uh, to help them hire, recruit, nurture their staff. I think, again, we, we've seen a number of initiatives to help the staff well-being. There's a focus, a general focus of society today on, on mental health, which is great. People in hospitality are put under a lot of pressure. So anything employers can do to kind of alleviate that that kind of mental burden will, you know, maximize their chances to retain staff and get good staff. I've seen, uh, so obviously you have, you have lots of recruitment or, you know, um, uh, recruitment platforms, which are, I think, very useful for employers in particular. I think employers also need to think of, again, how to help employees with their daily work and their career. So Otolo is a company that is is running a mentoring program for hospitality workers, which I think is really useful and needed to build that new generation of hospitality leaders. In another vein, you have uh, Tipjar is a well-known brand now uh, in the tipping space and is doing amazing work at making tipping more transparent and more accessible uh, where employees can get access to their tips right away. Obviously, Storkit, we are a mobile payment ordering platform. We call that a guest experience platform. We'll talk about it. But this kind of allows the business to effectively save quite a bit of time and reallocate this time, gives this time back to the staff to maybe focus on things that are less stressful. I always tell the example of a waiter or a waitress taking a payment at the table with you know a number of guests and they need to make the math in their head to split the bill. I don't think that's the good 
moment for the waiter and that's not a good moment for the guests as well. So there's a lot of little things that I think compounded can make a, a difference in terms of what you, the experience you offer to your employees. From helping recruiters spot talent during the application process to allowing service staff to split bills quickly among guests, technology has a role to play throughout the F&B workers' entire employment journey. But streamlining employees' day-to-day tasks isn't necessarily about increasing transaction speeds or table turnover. It's about freeing them up to focus on more important and fulfilling tasks that technology can't do. George Armstrong is one of our users. He's the founder of um, Bolly Bolison, which is a club in East London. And they use uh, StoreKit in the VIP section. So they have the bar service, which is traditional. You go to the bar, you order your drink, you wait, you pay on the car terminal. But if you're in the VIP section, you have QR codes. And what that allowed him to do was to change the operation model and also change the, the way he calls the waiter. I think that's the easiest thing to understand. The waiters are now called vibe checkers. So what they do is actually going around, engaging with customers, just maybe flirting with the customers. It's a nightclub. But they don't need to take the orders themselves. They can still encourage to take another drink. They don't take the order per se. And they don't also have to take the payment, which, as you know, is a pain in a, in a nightclub anyway. So that, I think that's a very striking example of using technology and changing the role of the staff to actually an, a more skilled and more valuable role uh, of engaging with the customers. So apart from the ordering process, where else is technology helping to streamline employees' work? And are these solutions right for all brands in the F&B sector? So they are mostly focusing or helping the employee save time, effectively. Make the employee more productive. That's really how we, we see this. For instance, the easiest to understand is probably the, the pay the bill at the end. So you have uh, you can access your bill without asking for the bill and you can pay without asking for the car terminal, which means in turns that the employee can effectively either do other things or come to the table and engage with the customer at the time of payment, but not being, I would say, focused on the math of taking the payment itself, but actually engage into the conversation with the customer, right? So that's really the payment bit. And in terms of the ordering, so some types of hospitality venues are quite well suited to an online ordering. So people scan the QR code and they order. Typically, that's more casual venues. That's your drink led rooftop, you know, beer garden, or sometimes burger or pizza type of outlets. These are obviously ways to take orders that are extremely efficient. People tend to spend also more customers. And it means that uh, effectively the staff can really focus on the logistics, which is running the food and the drinks to the table as fast as possible. Uh, So in a venue where the hospitality is maybe more more casual, the expectations of the customers is not necessarily to place an order with a waiter, then that that can work uh, really well. All of that is saving a lot of time and increased productivity and efficiencies of the workers. From high-end bars to casual dining restaurants, these digital ordering and payment technologies are becoming synonymous with the food and beverage space. And as Christoph explains, such solutions are having a profound impact on their adopters. I think a good example is, is what we're doing now with Pizza Pilgrims. I think everyone that lives in London knows Pizza Pilgrims. It's almost a household name if you like pizza. When we met with the founders at Pizza Pilgrims, they, they were really keen to, at the same time, to use technology. And they were also very conscious that they are a service organization and they 
didn't want to eliminate the contact between the public and their, their waiters. Working together, what we realized was needed was a technology that would effectively ha- allow for a hybrid service, give flexibility to the operators, the GMs, the staff, and the customer to operate on their terms, depending on you know, the day of the week, if uh, this is an outdoor and in- indoor venue, but also depending on what the customer feels like. So what we built with them is effectively this, they call that the dream. And the dream is this idea, you do have a QR code on the table that allows for upselling. So you walk in, you're sitting at your table by your guest, the host. You place the first order typically in person. So maybe you will order a drink to start and then you order pizzas. And you know what happens when you order a beer and your pizza arrives is like by the time your pizza arrives, you finish the beer, but they forget to take your order. So that's the idea, right? Is being able to order the second round of drink when you can't tag down the waiter, which is an upsell obviously for the business, but also convenient for the consumer. And then we also allow the customer to pay at the end. So they can scan or see their bill, they can leave a tip and they can check out, they can split the bill if there are several payers at the table. But they can also decide to call a waiter and pay on a traditional car terminal if they, if they want to. Not only do these digital ordering technologies help give back valuable time to staff, but they also empower customers by allowing them to order at their own convenience, making for much happier patrons. And while customer satisfaction can be a tricky metric to measure, the effect these systems are having on bills is much more tangible. So as they anticipated, they do get upsells. So people do use the platform to place this extra beer, in my example. They see about 2% of incremental tips in average across their sites, with still quite a lot of variance depending, again, on, on how they use it and how they present it. But it's incremental tips that wasn't there before, Typically, customers spend more on digital, something everyone knows. You spend more on Deliveroo, you spend more at McDonald's on the kiosks. Same thing is true at Pizza Pilgrims when you order from your phone. So people tend to order their drink. You want a gin tonic, you're going to pay the extra quid or two to get a better gin. You do that on your phone. For some reason, you don't do that in person. Or it takes a very skilled bartender or waiter to do that as systematically as the app. Another thing that's really interesting is the feedback. So we can collect feedback on every transaction. So we are collecting close to 40% of the transaction lead to a feedback from a customer, which is unseen in hospitality. It really changes the game. Currently, if you're in hospitality, if you're working in a restaurant, you see your reviews. Typically, people look at Google and TripAdvisor as the main revenue driver long term. But they can't tie that specific visit to a time or a specific roster or a specific event that would be happening in the venue. So they, they don't really know. Well, now they can have you know their hand on the pulse and the pulse is representative. We've heard how digital ordering and payment solutions are helping make the working lives of service staff a little bit easier. Gone are the days of handwritten orders and anxiety-inducing on-the-spot maths. And in many cases, so is the need for staff to be on constant lookout, ready to assist tables at a moment's notice whilst juggling the rest of their duties. However, before these solutions made their way into the F&B space, this was the reality of life as a frontline service worker. But there was something unique about the industry that kept people entering and remaining in this challenging sector, the tips. While adding a few pounds to the bill might be a fairly simple thing to the customer, the reality of tipping from a business perspective is much more complex. 
to explain just how complicated tipping can be is the CEO of TipJar, Ben Thomas. So the legislation is complex around tips and tipping, but if I try and boil it down to a nutshell, what operators need to understand and be aware of is that there's a big difference between uh, a customer tipping one of your team individually and passing a tip to you as their employer to distribute. That's the difference. If you as an employer accept a tip for one of your team, or if you charge an optional service charge and want to give that to your team, there are rules you have to follow in order to do that without having to pay 13.8% national insurance on top of what you pay. So, you know, we know there are laws around paying staff. And when you pay your employees, there's rules you have to follow. One of those rules is that you have to pay employers national insurance on top. And if I really try and simplify it, what happened was that if I as a customer walk into a, a restaurant and I tip one of your staff £100, well, I've just cost you £13.80 which the employers all said, well, that's not very fair, is it? I didn't choose to, to give this money to my staff member. So the government said, OK, we'll, we'll write some rules about that. Those rules are that if you do honourably give that tip across, then you don't have to pay that national insurance on top of it, and the staff member doesn't have to pay national insurance either. But there are some rules that they put in place around that. Perhaps the most commonly dealt with rule is that if you're going to do that as an employer, you may not decide who gets what out of those tips and service charge. What you have to do is appoint an independent person to make those decisions about who gets what from those tips. The reason the government say that is if you as an employer are deciding who gets what from these tips that have been collected, well, it's not really a tip, is it? That's salary. So how do we show that there's not been influenced by the employer? And the approach most people take is to appoint what's legally called a trunk master and have that person make the decisions. And when you pay the tips to your team, you have to put them through a PAY payroll so that you're deducting income tax at source. And if that wasn't complicated enough, new policies are set to make the seemingly simple act of accepting tips even more complex. There is some new legislation, and that's going to add some even more <laughs> obligations for employers who deal with tips. First of all, what they're now saying is that there is this obligation to make sure 100% of any tips that you collect or service charges you collect must be distributed to employees. Believe it or not, at the moment, that isn't the case. And I have to say, the vast majority of hospitality operates in a really honourable way. And when you leave that tip on your credit card or you pay that optional service charge, that money does go to the staff. But there have been a few high-profile cases where that hasn't been the case. And in spite of many efforts in the industry, Ultimately, it's got to the point where the government have decided to legislate and say, actually, do you know what, that's not okay. You know, if you're charging a service charge and you're keeping some or keeping all, that's not okay. A service charge is there to reward staff. The other big change is that if you do collect tips and service charge, they have to be distributed to the staff in the place that you collected them. So at the moment, there's nothing to stop you. If you have 10 restaurants, you could put it all in one big pile and you could share it across those 10 restaurants. Again, that's felt by the government to be not a practice they support anymore. For me, what's abundantly clear in the big change is that the government are taking a view that if you do collect tips and service charge, that isn't your money. As a, as a business owner or an employer, it is the property of the staff in that location. And your role is more custodial, is to make sure that money does flow to them. And that is a big change. Finally, there's a whole load of new rules coming in around transparency, around staff having access to how you have calculated the tips they get. You must publish those rules 
openly. And staff now have an opportunity, if they feel those rules have been broken, to take you to tribunal, which previously they weren't able to do. So at the moment, you cannot take issues around tips and tipping to a tribunal. Even though tipping might be a source of headaches for some brands, it's definitely a management exercise that's worth tackling. Tips can have a huge impact on employees' take-home pay and is a key reason why many take on these demanding roles. And while these income boosts might be nice to have during stable financial periods, in times of economic crisis, they can be a valuable lifeline. It's probably easiest to illustrate it through my own story, actually, if I may. Uh, At 21 years old, I had my partner, now my wife, and and a daughter at home. I was a very young dad. We had very little money. We had a little council flat in New Cross. And um, I was a bartender. And uh, because we had very little money, they very kindly did what they tended to do, which is give us an electric prepayment meter, which was really nice for a a young couple with very little money. And what it meant was if we ran out of money, which did sometimes happen to us, not only were we hungry, it was also dark, which was not the easiest. Because I was a bartender, though, I would come home every day with 10 or 20 pounds in cash every day I worked. And literally for me, those tips kept my lights on. I went on to get my degree and went on to build a modicum of success in my career. And for me, that it was the tips that just turned what otherwise would have been a survival into the beginnings of building a life. And it's that freedom that I think it gives you, that you just have that small amount of cash. And you know, some of my background includes working in financial services. And there's so much research that says if someone hasn't got a lot of money, giving them access to a little bit of money regularly is a really great way just to keep them out of those traps that you can fall into. And I speak from personal experience. If you want to look at it from a data point of view, I mean, we commissioned possibly the most comprehensive study on this topic in recent years. And we found that 88% of staff in hospitality said that your tip processes, the transparency of that and the fairness of that, influences where they choose to work and how long they stay. And 86% said tips are important to their overall work satisfaction. So in terms of, you know, is that impacting customer experience? Well, I'd say yes, because we all know happy staff make happy customers and happy customers make a profitable and successful and long-lasting hospitality business. You know, what does it take to get there? For me, it's about transparency. It's about speed. You know, you've got to get this money to people quickly and a clear connection between the work people do and the tips they get. When it comes to tips, there's no question about the crucial role they play in staff satisfaction and, therefore, customer satisfaction. So if food and beverage businesses want to attract the best talent in the service industry, they can't afford to get sloppy when it comes to their tipping practices. But what can they do to lessen the burden on themselves in making sure tips are divided fairly and, more importantly, in line with ever-changing legislation? Well, that's where Tip Jar comes in. So cash tips are great. I mean, we say to all of our users, look, if a customer wants to tip you in cash, take the cash. The reality, of course, is that most of us don't carry cash anymore, and hence the need for innovation. That's what's really driven it. I mean, our business was born when my business partner, James, uh, who runs uh, BrewDog's retail estates, hundreds of bars all over the world, when they started to turn bars cashless. 
And for an operator, it is the best thing ever because for an operator's point of view, your transaction speed's increasing. You don't have your manager sat in the back office until three in the morning counting five Ps that no one's touched in a week. You don't have a security key guard marching through your beautiful atmosphere you've set up halfway through the night to come and collect bags of cash. Makes everything better for the operator. The one downside is that those cash tips just go to absolutely nothing. And that was really the genesis of, of tip jar. And again, we, we believe we're, we were the first to market with a potential solution for that, for that challenge. So the innovations we're bringing into the market in tip jar work in two ways. So we have solutions that can allow customers to tip staff directly without the money ever flowing through the employer. The other solution we bring to the market is one that can completely automate that legal compliant process of tips that an employer has collected being distributed. And our system is called Supertronk, and it enables an employer to pass the tips they've collected to us for distribution to their staff very quickly, very transparently, and fully compliant with both current legislation and the new legislation, which is soon to pass through the last stages of Parliament. The arguments for facilitating the fair distribution of tips are clear. They provide valuable supplementary income for staff, they increase employee satisfaction and in turn they contribute to a happy and loyal customer base. But is seemingly having a solid tipping policy enough to attract new staff and keep existing employees from seeking opportunities elsewhere? Apparently not. Because not only is the ability for staff to accept tips a crucial factor, Food and beverage workers want their tipping policies to be transparent too. The truth is, staff care about this a lot, and customers care about this a lot. In the research we've done, 84% of staff were worried that they were not getting a fair share of their tips, and 67% had asked questions, 66% experienced deductions from those tips, and the most worrying one for me is that 74% of those were never informed why, which is really interesting, right? So... I mean, knowing our industry as, 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 I, as, as I do, honestly, I think the vast majority of hospitality operators do a brilliant job here, right? They, they want to do it as transparently and as honestly as they can. I think the challenge is it's complicated to do that. It's not easy. So I think some of that research is about just the, the capacity of hospitality to communicate this stuff well and their ability to communicate it to staff and to give them access to the information and to give them that reassurance that, no, no, 100% of the tips we collect are going to you guys. We're distributing them really fairly and this is what you're left with. So there is a huge demand from staff to see what's happening with their tips. On the flip side with customers, I mean, in our research, 89% of customers said they think it's important that non-cash tips are shared fairly. And 92% of them believe that fair shares looks like sharing the tips and service charges with the people who were working when they were received. And interesting, 90% of staff agree with that too. So what's interesting is that from a customer perspective who leaves a tip, from the staff perspective who receive the tips, it's not that complicated how they think tips should be treated, in truth. And we had seen so many examples where issues and problems in tipping can just cause massive damage to the culture of, of an organisation, the culture of a, of a hospitality team. So that confidence, again, is the simple hospitality equation. Happy staff make happy customers and happy customers make for profitable and long-lasting hospitality businesses. And it's not just the staff that care about what happens to their tips. Customers want to know they're being distributed properly and fairly too. Often we'll ask if the waitress gets the money and that um, it doesn't go into the coffers of the 
restaurant. <laughs> I'd like to think it went to everybody, but I'm not too sure about that. Well, when I used to be a waitress, it got shared between everybody. But then I do think the restaurant just took some for themselves. From my personal experience working in restaurants, it varies. Sometimes the manager takes it all, sometimes it's split evenly, sometimes it's split between like kitchen staff. So you tend to ask before to get an idea, so you're not throwing money away. But it's difficult now because most restaurants have like service charge included, so you don't really know where that's going. So far, we've heard how modern solutions are helping food and beverage brands find new talent and retain existing staff. And while we focus largely on front of house roles, there's still a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to make sure our favourite bars and restaurants run smoothly. So what are the solutions helping bars and restaurants function day to day? Here to tell us about the development of the platforms aiding food and beverage businesses is SVP of Platforms and Financial Services at Adyen, Hemo Bosha. Sort of the early 2010s, you, you saw software as a service sort of take off. And there's both horizontal and vertical SaaS platforms, right? So you have companies that run accounting software, for example, for a very broad range of companies, and then try to, from that accounting software, offer more services. And you've also got verticalized players that have just become really, really, really good at anticipating the needs of very specific businesses. So... Where it wasn't true 10 years ago, it's definitely true now that if, for example, Sophie says, I'd like to start my own coffee business, there is a software platform for that, that has anticipated the needs of Sophie already. And they basically said, you worry about all the things that you care about. We'll worry about running your business, right? We, we can help you with your payroll or your booking system or like, we basically know what's required to run a business. Taking care of practically all the admin duties that would normally take hours every week to complete, platforms allow managers and business owners to focus on issues where their experience and expertise can be put to better use. And as these technologies continue to evolve, handle more tasks and service new business types, their usage is becoming more prevalent. These platforms really, really took off, I think, in the last decades in selling this software to entrepreneurs and to small and mid-sized businesses. They have really, really big markets now. Like, for example, food and beverage in the US, you're looking at numbers upwards of 80%. So that, that means that roughly of all the small and medium-sized businesses, over 80% in that given vertical is now run on a platform. And that's up from in the 20 and 30% just five years ago. So what they started doing in the later 2010s is seeing that, hey, we can probably sell them more than just payments. And this small and mid-sized business owner is also incentivized to take more services from this software platform because they, you know, they enjoy the interaction with that platform. It's how they run their business. So I think a lot of leading platforms, and, and those the name I mentioned, it is one example they sort of took that and thought, wait, hey, we can embed payments. You know, we'll just call it those payments and we can include that in our offering because then all of a sudden their market is no longer finite, right? Because once you reach 100% penetration, that's quite slow growth. However, if they can add distribution leverage, so selling another service to the same group, suddenly your market's twice as big. And I think that's what a few of them uh, started seeing in the later 2010s and successfully doing. And now you have the likes of Toast and Lightspeed that already make more off of payments than they do off of software. So they basically created two net revenue lines for the same group 
of business owners. And why that's interesting is that it's also extremely useful for the small and mid-sized business. So this is not just a case of platforms sort of being very opportunistic as sort of having uh, solved capitalism in a way. For the small business owner, it is incredibly intuitive to want that service at competitive price from the place they run their business already because they they don't have the time or the energy or the, the wherewithal to go look for a payments service provider, right? So we saw that that trend called embedded payments really take off in the late 2010s and that's now continuing. And what you're seeing is that in the leading verticals and leading markets, I think about US, UK, F&B, retail and hospitality, that's a continuing trend and it's hitting more verticals in those markets. Just as it did in the retail space, embedded finance looks set to take the food and beverage industry by storm. But what are the benefits that make these services so appealing? This can again be compounded if you start adding things that are traditionally marked as financial services, things that you would traditionally get from banks, right? So think about this sort of Sophie and she owns a coffee shop. Not only are you providing her with payment service and you're providing her with software, but you might also provide her with a cash advance because maybe her coffee machine broke and uh, small business financing is tremendously underserved by traditional banks, both because for Sophie, it's a very arduous process, but also because for traditional banks, they have to sort of manually assess all these loans. Now, in contrast, if we run the payments for this platform, we can see that Sophie's coffee shop, it's a trustworthy business, that she generates enough income to qualify for this loan. We've already KYC'd her. So we can push a cash advance offering that is entirely up to her to decline it or to accept it to her in the portal from the platform that she already uses to run her business. So it's taking something that was stuck in the 1980s when it comes to ease of use for small businesses and basically transporting it into sort of the app economy we have now. It is an access to credit that is, it doesn't really have an equivalent right now in society. And to us, I think I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that this really it, it really democratizes access to finance. In short, embedded finance is taking the already powerful tool of the platform and augmenting it, giving business owners the power to quickly and conveniently access financial products without the rigmarole of going to a bank. Given how difficult and lengthy the process of a traditional loan is, it's no surprise that more and more businesses are seeking platforms with embedded finance. To be honest, the interesting part about this industry, I think, is that nobody's quite sure where this will stop. Because hypothetically, what many of these sort of leading platforms in these verticals are saying is, hey, we've solved what it is to run a spa. We've solved what it is to run a restaurant. Now, embedding payments is a reality for the leading players, but it is by no means everywhere. So that is still very much in progress. The next step, we believe, is disintermediating traditional banks in the realm of the traditional financial services like card issuing, bank accounts, cash advances. That's a logical next step, we believe, and we see it uh, in in a real-world testing too. It sounds fantastical, but to be honest, the sky is kind of the limit because everything you need to run your business that you currently don't do on a platform, you can probably do it on a platform eventually. One of the more uh, overused phrases in our industry, I think, is one-stop shop. But that is potentially the final stop on this train. That either through partners uh, like Atien 
or other partners in the realm of, for example, tax or compliance, that that platforms really do do everything. And that as a small business owner, you just plug it in. I think that is the sort of the end state for some of these verticals. That's a very long way away. But I, yeah, I couldn't think of anything that these platforms couldn't hypothetically take in-house and, and, and do for their um, business owners that are their customers. In this episode, we've learned how crucial happy staff are to the food and beverage industry. We've heard about the challenges facing employers and those entering the workforce, as well as discovered the solutions and technologies helping brands and staff overcome these difficulties. We've also discussed the critical role transparent tipping plays in the sector and why these payments are so important to hospitality workers. And finally, we've heard how platforms and embedded finance are helping businesses by giving them access to convenient and affordable funding. Tune in to our next episode as we take a closer look at the role consumers play in shaping this ever-evolving sector. It's changed completely. When you think that years ago people had maybe time, they had a lot of time in their hand. You know, they used to have long lunches, long dinners, long afternoon tea, all these things. Even sometimes if you go in a beautiful boutique, to buy a beautiful watch or a beautiful bag. You've got maybe only 10, 15 minutes to do that. If you go in a restaurant for lunch, you've got 45 minutes and your phone is there, keep ringing. You can hear the text, you can hear the email, you can hear all that. So really, time have changed. Time have changed a lot. People don't have time as they used to have. You've been listening to Beyond Retail. I'm your host, Marie Keyworth. If you want to find out more about the topics discussed in today's episode, visit adyen.com or follow the link in the show notes. A big thank you to Robert Richardson, Christophe Delacroix, Ben Thomas and Hemo Boscher for joining us today. And join us next time as we learn all about the changing consumer trends influencing the food and beverage retail space. I'll see you then.